Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm the downtown pastor, one of our elders here at the Austin Stone. We have a Bible. Go and open up to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. Um, it may take a little bit to find it. It's by Obadiah. That probably doesn't help, but um, you probably have a phone, so you can just find it there. Today begins... A brand new series for us, an eight-week trek through the book of Jonah, and I am so excited for what God has in store for us as a people as we go through this book, verse by verse, story by story, through it. And from the very beginning, I, I want to tell you what this book is about, what the whole eight weeks is ultimately about, and I want you to know it's about more than a fish. The, the most famous story in the book of Jonah is him getting swallowed up by a great fish, and we'll get to that eventually when it's in the text. But I want you to know that the theme of this prophetic book is not the dangers of sea travel or that God loves whales, though both should be noted, right? That's not the point of this book. The main point of this book that we're gonna hit again and again and again is found explicitly stated in Jonah 2.9. In Jonah 2.9, it summarizes all that God was speaking to Israel through Jonah and all that he's speaking to you today. Here it is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah 2.9, it's the theme of the entire book. This is Jonah praying, he says, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. At the end of Jonah's prayer in the belly of the great fish, he makes this confession. He says, salvation belongs totally and completely to God. Now what he's saying, that knowledge of God and experience of his covenant love is owing solely to the work of God. And it's not limited to a person or a people, nor is it dependent on humanity or any of our efforts. It's God's decision, God's prerogative, God's work for anyone to have a relationship of love with him. And one of the ways God shows his people that salvation belongs solely to him is he will give grace and salvation to other people who deep down, if we're honest, we don't think they deserve it. He'll give grace and salvation to those who we think aren't worthy of it. See, Israel was the first but not the last group of people to attempt to limit God's love and God's blessing to themselves. See, humanity is naturally tribal and ethnocentric because we don't worship God as our highest trust and treasure. No, instead, instead of loving God and loving any who bear his image, we love self and any who bear our image. That's what sin is. But our sin is so deceitful and insidious that we'll try to love God without loving who he loves. What we'll do is we'll separate God's word about personal devotion to him from our social lives. Like Israel, we'll emphasize personal devotion to God and ignore all of his commands about how we treat other people. See, it's our sinful desire that wants to be out from under God's rule and God's reign where we want to benefit from him but never listen to him. That's what sin wants to do. I don't wanna to listen to you, but I'd like to benefit from you. But through Jonah and through the entire Bible, God makes it abundantly clear that to love him is to love who he loves. That to mistreat other people is actually to mistreat God. This is the nature 
of our relationship with him. He is not after a casual friendship with you. He is after the most permanent, most prominent, most committed, most intimate relationship with you. And I know in this room, most of us are not married, but one thing you learn really quickly in marriage is that to not love who and what your spouse loves actually hurts them. I have learned this the hard way many times with my wife, Lauren. She is very sentimental, I am not. And you can see this really clearly in how we handle birthdays. So birthdays, for her, the day is a big deal. The day of her birth is a big deal. It doesn't matter if if I took her to an incredible restaurant on October 1st, have an incredible weekend getaway on October 10th, and I brought her whole family in town on October 4th. She will love all of those things and appreciate all those things and love me for all of those things, but October 2nd better have something, right? It better have something. It doesn't have to be extravagant, but it's the day she was born. Now listen, I'm not anti-birthday guy. I'm not the guy who's like, big whoop, you existed for another year kind of guy. I'm not the like, we invented this in the, in the depression kind of guy. Like, that's not who I am. I love the idea of celebrating you once a year, just once a year, and celebrating you <laughs> and celebrating people that you love. I'm all for that tradition. But the day itself is not that big of a deal to me. So you can imagine how often I've hurt Lauren by not doing something on the actual day. Now, I ha- unfortunately, I have plenty of stories to choose from for this part of the sermon. But one of my earliest failures was when we were still dating, but we were a very serious relationship, about to be engaged. And so we had planned, I had planned something to do on the weekend after her birthday. I'm the best boyfriend in the world. That's my basic assumption in life with Lauren is that I'm doing great. But October 2nd comes, and I don't think to call her at all. Take it easy, okay? She's not even in here. She went to the nine. Take it easy. I don't even think to call her. Why? We plan something on the weekend. Like, that's my thought. So October 2nd is going on. I don't think for a second about it or her. Um, and it, the, towards the end of the day, on Lauren's birthday, Lauren calls me. And she calls me, and we start having a small talk conversation on the phone, and after a while, I, I can realize uh, something's off, right? So I push pause on the video game that I was playing, um, because the whole time I was playing video games when she was talking. I was 21, guys, take it easy. Um, if you're 21 in here, you have no excuse now, you know. Um, so I pause the video game and I say, hey, is something wrong? Even I can sense something's wrong. And she said, hey, it's my birthday and you didn't call me. Now, when she said that, I should have been cut to the heart. Babe, I'm so sorry, I can't believe I did that. But my first response was, but we're doing something this weekend. (laughs) And then I'm pretty sure what I said is, I'm sorry if that hurt your feelings, which is not an apology. If you think that it is, you're wrong, right? Like that's, (laughs) you're wrong. If you don't, like, I don't get it. Ask your friend after you leave, okay? Now, that's a pretty dense example, but it highlights something. To not love what she loves says something to her about how I feel about her, right? 
that I can't say I love her and then ignore things that are precious and important to her, especially because of our relationship as husband and wife. Now listen, other than my clear sin and selfishness in that situation, one of the biggest misunderstandings I had was about the nature of me and Lauren's relationship. So here's the truth. I was treating her like she was just one of my close friends. Like, like that, that was a misunderstanding. I was treating her like, yeah, you're one of my close, good friends. This is how I would treat any one of my guy friends on their birthday. The fact that I celebrated it is saying something. I would never do that for my guy friends typically. But the nature of our relationship was different. My wife isn't just another close friend of mine. She isn't just another roommate. Our relationship has a permanence and a power like no other relationship in my life. Much of my early married life with Lauren was me learning that the way that I speak and the way that I behave and the way that I feel affects her in ways I've never affected another human being in my life. And so to truly love her is to love who and what she loves. And to not love and honor what she loves is actually unloving and dishonorable to her. That's how that sort of covenant relationship works. Now listen, the type of relationship God has with anyone who knows him is like no other in your life. He is not one of many close friendships. He's not one of a few trusted counselors. He's not one of a few main influences. He isn't just one of your deepest loves. If you are going to know him, the only way to know him is for him to be your highest authority and highest value and highest joy and highest love. And today we're gonna see from the word of God through Jonah, listen, to not love who he loves is a rejection of him. To not love who he loves is a rejection of him. Jonah, chapter one, verse one through three, on the screen behind me, this is the word of God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. God's word comes to the prophet Jonah and tells him, go preach to Nineveh. He should go to Nineveh and declare to this great city that their evil has not gone unnoticed by God. What does he do? He immediately runs away from God. He goes to the port of Joppa, he finds a ship, he pays the fare, and he wants to go anywhere other than Nineveh. He hops on the boat, sails away, and what does it say? From the presence of the Lord, why? He wants nothing, nothing to do with this word from God. Now, if we're gonna understand at all what's going on in this text, we need to understand the people and the places mentioned in this text. So first, Jonah. Jonah, he's the main character of this entire book. We don't have much information about him as a person or as a prophet other than one reference to him. Jesus will, will reference him in the Gospels, but in the Old Testament, there's one reference to Jonah. It's in 2 Kings 14, 25. It says this. He, referring to a king of Israel, 
restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke, listen, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So what do you see in this text? The important thing to note in this text is that phrase, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. What does that tell you about Jonah? He had received the word of God before. He had obeyed God before by speaking his word in such power that it produced an actual result. So this is not Jonah's first time hearing from God. He's very familiar with the truthfulness and the power of God's word. He's already an established prophet to Israel. Second, Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire at the time, which is most likely around 8th century BC. Now the Assyrians were a rival power. They had fought against Israel, they had murdered their people, they destroyed their cities. And the Assyrian kings had a history of mocking God outright, of defying Israel and their faith and trust in him. The Assyrians represented, though they weren't the only ones, they represented to Israel the arrogance of humanity towards God and his people. They were ethnically and culturally different, religiously different, and in direct, opposi- in direct opposition to Israel in every way. So in worldly terms, they're enemies. They're absolute enemies. And it's in this context that the word of God comes to Jonah, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He's saying, go to your enemy in their greatest city, a people different from you in every way, and you preach to them that the God of heaven is here and he sees what they are doing. That sounds daunting, doesn't it? That'd be like me telling you, the word of God's come to you and says, arise, go to Iraq. Find the hub of the operations of ISIS and go into that city and you preach and you call out against that city and you tell them the Lord sees what you're doing and the evil you've committed, he has not gone unnoticed. Now, if you think about that, at best, at absolute best, you're expecting what? To be mocked and belittled. At worst, you're expecting to be tortured and killed. But this is the Bible, right? This is the Bible. It's a book full of heroes, right, who always trust God in the face of any obstacle and threats. Jonah's not that kind of prophet. He's a lot more like you and like me. See, verse two says, this is the word of God, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God says, arise, go to Nineveh. So verse three, look at what Jonah does. But Jonah rose. Hey, first step, he obeyed. God says, get up. All right, I'm getting up, God. All right, great job, Jonah, good so far. And he immediately goes the other direction. He rose, what does it say, to flee. He heard God's word, and he went in the opposite direction. Now listen, our guy Jonah didn't just go the next town over. He wanted to get as far away as possible. Let me show you a map of Nineveh in relation to Tarshish. Let me show you a map. 
Okay. He didn't disobey a little, right? <laughs> this fool went five times the distance in the opposite direction. The next stop on that map is America. That's the next stop. <laughs> he wants nothing to do with what God told him to do. He goes the opposite direction. He is the anti-hero of all the prophets. You can take that down. He wants absolutely nothing to do with God's word. Nothing to do. And listen, he becomes a great picture of you and of me. He becomes a great person to learn from because so often we're like him. Now there is so much to say here, but here's the main thing I want you to consider today from this text. Jonah did not reject God's word until it meant loving and serving people that he didn't want to. He didn't reject God's word until it meant loving and serving other people that he didn't want to. Remember what I showed you earlier in 2 Kings. He had already heard the word of the Lord before. He had actually obeyed the word of the Lord before. He had been an established prophet with direct revelation from God before. He had no problem being personally devoted to God, speaking whatever he told him to speak until being devoted to God meant being devoted to people who didn't think like him or look like him. And that's when he runs. He rejected God when it meant the inclusion and the blessing of those who didn't believe what he believed or looked the way he looked. Now there are so many applications in your personal life, but I believe there are two groups in particular that God has put before us as a people that we especially have to arise up and move towards. Now listen, I didn't receive some, some special word of the Lord this week. I didn't sense some special calling we have as a church. God didn't give me any direct revelation and I don't have to wait for that to have a word from God because that's not how God speaks to his people anymore. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, so you can see that for yourself. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Jonah. But how does he speak now? Verse two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God already gave you a word. You don't have to wait for one. You don't have to wait to hear from God anymore. He's given his final authoritative word for the world, for his people, through his son by the apostles. Now, the spirit of God still speaks today. But his job is to speak the things Jesus has already spoken and to give us wisdom and discernment to understand what he said and how to apply that in our lives. He's speaking, but he's confirming all the words Jesus already spoke and so from the word of God, from the words of Jesus, I can see there are two groups of people who are different than us that we have to especially seek out to love with our lives and with the word of God. First, we are called, you have received the word of God telling you, arise, go to those outside of your faith. Jesus has clearly told you to do this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Church, you don't need a new word from God to know Jesus has called you and given his word for you to love those outside of our faith. That's the word right there. That we have a calling on our lives to show the world what it means to be his disciple what it means to obey all that he commanded, what it means to be forgiven and loved by God, what it means to live your life in line with his kingdom, your family, and your relationships, and your education, and your finances, and your profession, and your ambitions have all been given to you by God, but for the purpose of stewarding the word of the Lord that's come to you. Everything he's given you was never meant to end on you and those who look like you. It was always meant to be given to you as a means of blessing the world by showing them what does it mean to follow Jesus and inviting them to be a part of what we believe. Now, I would venture to guess that most of you know that if you've been a part of this church for any period of time. So most of us are familiar with that. That's the first group of people. The second group of people that we're called to arise and go to are those outside of your race and culture. Those outside of your race and culture. Church, there is so much for us to learn in this regard. See, God's word, I don't know if you know this, it constantly emphasizes you loving people who don't look like you to draw out your own idolatry of your image over God's image. It is not insignificant that the people Jonah's called to go preach to are of a different ethnic group. The Assyrians and the Jews had real issues. They had a troubled history and they had visceral tension between them. And he's called to cross those racial lines and go preach. Notice how in the Great Commission I just read to you from Matthew 28, what does Jesus say? All nations because he knows our tendency is to stay around those who are like us and look like us. He's saying my kingdom is bigger than any one people group. And even when Jesus is teaching how to love your neighbor in the way that he calls you to love your neighbor, the example he gives is racial in nature. The good Samaritan is a Samaritan who's hated by the Jews, loving and serving a dying Jewish man, even though their groups hated one another. To love your neighbor necessarily will mean you crossing racial lines. He commands us to do this again and again throughout the Bible because he's showing off how expansive the diversity and unity and love is of his kingdom. This last week, I was with several of our pastors and leaders from across our church at MLK 50. This was a conference for pastors and leaders all over the country to join in Memphis, Tennessee on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King to consider what does it mean for the church to experience racial reconciliation. And it was honestly, it was one of the most powerful conferences I've ever been a part of. I'm, I'm, still, I'm still processing over what God has for me, has for us, and what this means. But I need you to hear me, church. I need you to hear me. Please do not think 
that race is a non-issue in our city, in this church, or in your life. Now, let me be clear. Our non-white brothers and sisters already know this. They are very familiar with this. But the majority of us are having to catch up. See, this is not a political statement. This is not a social statement. It's a biblical statement to say that God has always called us to love those of different races from us because he knows our ethnocentrism, our tribal mentalities, our racial prejudice will influence and affect who we love and who we don't, who we sacrifice for and who we refuse to sacrifice for. Now, there is so much to be said. I'm not, this one sermon will by no means cover all of it, but let me say this to my fellow white brothers and sisters in this church. We are a majority white church. You have got to listen to me. We know very little, very little about what it means and what the experience is like to be a man or woman of color in this country, in this city, and this church. We know very little. Over the past year and a half, I have learned more and had so many men and women be patient with me. I have learned so much from my African-American and Hispanic and Asian brothers and sisters be patient with me and teach me and help me understand that their experience is very different from mine and the majority culture in which I live. So many men and women in this church have been patient with me and endured many things from me so that they could help me. I'm so grateful for them. So you have to know how difficult and challenging it can be and is for them to live and breathe in this city and in our church. But let me say this, and I can't speak on behalf of everyone. I wouldn't dare to be that bold. But I can say this. The common thing I've heard from every type of person is that they expect it from the world. It's harder when it's from the church. They expect it from the world. They don't know Jesus. It's harder when those who you thought would love you and listen the most are the quickest to turn away. That's what makes it the most difficult. When those who you know theologically are brothers and sisters treat you like strangers. Now listen, I'm not saying, church, that you haven't suffered. I'm not saying you haven't carried heavy burdens. I'm not saying you should feel guilty for being white. God made you that way. It's a good and glorious thing that he did. I'm not saying you haven't worked hard. I'm not saying I haven't gone through anything. I have suffered much the last four years. Someone else's difficulty doesn't nullify my experiences either. But I want you to know, I want you to know our non-white brothers and sisters in Christ have gone through all the same universal sufferings and burdens and sorrows that cut across every race and every person. They've had all those things that we have. And then on top of this, they've had the consistent feeling of disconnect, the consistent experience of being misunderstood, the consistent experience of being, their experience being explained away of being ostracized and being undervalued 
by those they thought would value them most. That's been their experience. Now, we have so far to go as individuals, as a church in this area, but listen to me. Once again, my fellow majority culture, white men and women whom I love, if we, if we will not listen to and learn from our non-white brothers and sisters, there is no pathway forward. There is none. If we get defensive and we get insecure, there's no way forward. Now, I'm not saying we have to agree on every single topic. That's not the goal. But if we can't humbly listen and humbly ask questions and not explain away every experience different than our own as an exaggeration of some sort, if, we, if you don't want to do that and you don't want to wade into that, then you are saying, I don't want to love my neighbor. I don't want to love my brother or sister. And if you say that, you are saying, I don't want to love God. To not love who he loves is to reject him. This is something we're going to have to wade into if we want to be faithful. And I'm not saying that we want that. I'm just saying it will reveal that in us. See, when God's word says, listen, when God's word says, arise, go to those outside your faith. Go to those outside your race. Listen to me. Ships to Tarshish will always present themselves conveniently to you. An older pastor said, every time we want to run away from God, there is always a ship available. Don't read tea leaves and signs. Don't think God would never provide an opportunity for you to disobey him. Jonah is a reminder that there's always a ship to take you away. And honestly, all of us, all too quickly and quietly, casually hop onto these ships to get away from obeying his word. See, what we want is we want God to solely keep his words directed at personal purity and personal forgiveness, and personal issues, and have him have therapy for us and love us, and those are all good things, but we don't want words about sacrificing and love for other people. See, we we make the personal commands between me and God, reading my Bible, praying, those are non-negotiable, but social commands, well, those are too complex to really know how to obey them. So the ship of self-justification comes floating your way and it says, hey, you're relatively a good person. You never hated anybody. You live in Austin, Texas. We're a progressive city. Surely this doesn't apply to you. You've obeyed in a lot of areas. You even give money to nonprofits. Surely it's not that big of a deal. The, The ship of despair And hopelessness comes floating your way and it says, listen, you're too dysfunctional and broken to really help anybody else. The world's broken. What change can there really be? Let's just wait for heaven to get here. Let's go this way. Listen, ship after ship 
stands at the port of disobedience, ready and willing to take you far away from the presence of God. They'll always be there. And truthfully, all of us are a lot like Jonah. See, regardless of how we justify our lack of love for others, whether we're blatant in our prejudice and our self-focus, or if we're more religious and respectable, whether you hop on the party barge or you get in the rowboat to get away from God, either way, whether you celebrate your dysfunction or you're quiet and austere and reserved about your dysfunction, without God's grace, we will all find some way to justify and hoarding God's love and blessing for ourselves and those who look like us and believe like us. And here's the thing about the church that's the worst part is we'll do all those things and we'll justify it by saying God's called me to this. I haven't been called to that. We pick and choose what we'll listen to. The only hope The only hope for Jonah's like us is the fact that Jesus did everything Jonah and we are unwilling to do on our own. Listen, Jesus left heaven to love those completely different than himself. He left the familiarity of his own home and culture to breathe in foreign air. He left perfection and purity to wade into sin and pain. He left what is comfortable and normal from his own experience to know what we know and our temptations for himself. And how did he come to you, church? He didn't come to you by lording his power over you. He didn't make demands that you change first before he helps He didn't make any deals so he could benefit from us in some way. He didn't come to those who were mighty or those who had it put together. Beloved people of God, listen to me. Jesus didn't read a book about you. He got inside your story to feel what you feel. He put on your flesh, your skin color, and he felt what you feel. It wasn't enough to know about you in theory. He wanted to know in actuality. He came in lowly love to serve you when all you did was take from him. He came to bear the weight and shame of your sorrows. He came to take on the burden of your sin. He lost everything we're scared to lose. Why? So we could be reconciled to him. See, he showed us that to be reconciled to God and to other people costs. It costs Jesus everything. It cost him everything so you could know God and know his people. But the resurrection testifies to you and to me that the road to Nineveh is hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And that the ships selling to Tarshish never land where they promise they will. They make a lot of promises about what life is like 2,500 miles away, and yet you never end up there. It's his loving loss for us why we go and why we move towards other people. It's his faithfulness that's going to endure us. It's his life and the promise of the kingdom of God, though it comes through loss and tribulation, it 
always gives a hundredfold what it took from you. So this week, this week, who is someone that doesn't share our faith that you need to ask them a question about their faith or lack thereof? Who is someone that you've talked to many times about your life but you never actually share the story of how God changed your life? This week, reach out to them, make it happen. This week, who is someone at your work, your neighborhood, this church, who does not share your racial heritage, who you can have a conversation with and invite to lunch? Who is a man or woman of color who you can ask and say, tell me honestly what your experience has been like in the city, in this church, and you just listen. Do that this week. This week. Now the word of the Lord came to the Austin stone saying, arise, go to those outside of your faith to make disciples and go to those outside of your race to listen and learn and serve and love and do all of this because you feel guilty? No, because Jesus did even more so for you. Church, I hope we learn from Jonah that everything God calls you to, even when it challenges the core of who you are, it's always for your flourishing and his salvation going to more people because he wants to free you from the notion that salvation belongs to you or to me or this church or any people group. It belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, before we move, before our minds drift, God, this is one of those words, if we're honest and we consider what you have to say, all of us stand guilty before you. God, I know that this word, even as the one preaching it, God, I know it challenges me as I preach it. And God, would you make us a people who don't just love to hear about your word when it applies to other people, but God, when your word speaks to us, we listen. Save us from being a people who love to study and not obey. A people who love to sing but not to follow. A people who don't confess sin because we're scared what you'll say. But God, if anyone can come to you, whether it's been weeks or months of years of disobedience, and know without a shadow of a doubt that you're going to respond in love to us, it should be your people. God, I love that every time I come to you with sin I didn't even know that I had. Not once have you turned me away. Not once have you shunned us. Not once have you begrudgingly accepted us. Not once have you felt tired of us. Not once have you chosen not to forgive us. God, every single time your people come to your feet, you have love and mercy and grace and hope and power to go out and obey. God, I want this church to be different. 
tired of playing the games. I'm tired of talking big and doing nothing. But God, I'm not foolish to think I'm strong enough to do it. I'm not foolish enough to think we're strong enough to do it. Holy Spirit, the only way we'll be different and show this city what your kingdom is like is if you show up in power for us. I'm under no illusion about our strength. So Spirit, as we sing, soften our hearts. Take away defensive postures, heal wounds that have been there for decades, and make us new. Not for our name, not for our little lives, God, but for your glory in this world. We pray these things in Christ's name.